This is Basket Case Clubs, CPR Group's podcast where we turn basket case clubs into showcase clubs. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Basket Case Clubs. I'm Michael Connolly and I shall be your host for this episode and joining me again is Steve Connolly. G'day Steve, how are you travelling? G'day, really good thanks Mick. Good to see you again and hear your wonderful sultry tones. It's been a little... <laughs> Well, I said dulcet. That <laughs> <laughs> depends what sort of voice you put on. What was, like a radio what's, host. what's his name? The Golden Tonsils. Like seriously, of all of the things that you could get called, the Golden <laughs> Tonsils, it sounds like you're going to hook up a great big gold-coloured oh, yeah. loogie. That's, no. oh, hey, I'll take golden tonsils. It's probably better <laughs> than things I've been called. <laughs> the, so you've heard the fable of the, the goose that laid the golden egg. What about the radio announcer that hocked up the golden loogie? <laughs> golden, hang on, isn't that an Australian award? The golden loogie? The loogies? No, oh. that's the loogies. <laughs> Downhill from the start. Oh. So, <laughs> it's obviously been too long since we've hit that record button when we've been <laughs> nattering to each other. Obviously. So today we are taking a journey down the professionalization of sport. This is something that we talk about a lot and professionalization as we talk about it is different from professional. So we're not talking about professional support and we don't seek to pass judgment here on whether you should pay your athletes or not. That's a, a you know, again, that's a business decision, but it's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the professionalization of the business model that sits around amateur sport or community sport. So in a lot of cases, clubs get to a point where they either have grown so much that they've experienced growing pains and they decide, hey, it's time to pull the trigger. We need to start paying some people to do the to do this work because there's so much of it to do. Or they struggle so much to get volunteers that they come up with some system of paying people. So that's how professionalization is distinct from professional. Now, where it all tends to fall apart is it isn't usually one nice, neat decision. So it's not, and sometimes it's not even a conscious decision. It's something that transitions over time. We've been a volunteer organization. Then you start slipping a few bucks under the table to somebody who's doing a bit of work. And you'd never, and rarely do people stop and make it formal. So what we want to talk about today is how not <laughs> how not to do it. And we've got some doozies of stories. And I suppose we do have to be a little bit careful here because we are treading on some pretty contentious industrial relations and human relations and taxation issues and superannuation issues. But so we'll, we'll share the stories as best as we can. But that should give you an overview of what's in stall in the next 20 or 30 minutes or so. And I'll look back on that, Steve, and it'll be, you know, 130 minutes. And we'll still be going with our stories of dodginess. <laughs> and I suppose this is a really interesting topic because obviously we live every day in the volunteer world and things aren't getting any easier when it comes to recruiting new volunteers. People are busier and busier in their personal lives and you know increasingly people broadly speaking are happy to pay a little bit extra and maybe be called upon to help out a little less you know we we're always every single organization that is primarily run by volunteers that we work with we hear that from them don't we you know oh, people it's just getting harder and harder to get volunteers and you know the few that we've got are burnt out they're doing too much each and 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 for that reason people are kind of often i think clutching at straws when it comes to getting people to help out and that might be where we see some of this 
incremental progression of, you know, uh, let's try this little idea to get people to help out. We'll give them a bit of money this way. And then that evolves into something a little messier five mm. or 10 years down the track. And like you say, there's often not the very deliberate and formal process followed to, to, to engage paid people in the same way that there would be in a professional setting. And that can also be simply because that's what we inherited. Exactly. Yeah. And I know I'll throw an example into the mix during the discussion today. And, and certainly that's the case uh, in, in that particular football club with which we work where probably three or four years worth of committees. And there's been a bit of change over that three or four years too. It hasn't just been the same committee carrying on, you know, people have inherited this problem of messy payments and they've identified in almost every case that it's messy and that they need to do something to fix it, but it becomes too difficult. So they just kind of sweep it under the rug and Mm. focus on the on-field exciting, shiny stuff. And eventually it did get to the point where the committee, you know, did something about it, but and, and this is such an important discussion because there can be some real exposure to, yeah. to clubs and also to the individual decision makers if things are done dodgily. So let's jump to a perfect world. In a perfect world, we would have a strategic approach. We would say, let's draw a line in the sand and look at all of the jobs that we've got and say, is this a job that I think it's okay to ask a volunteer to do? Or is it a job that I think it's not okay to ask a volunteer to do? Mm-hmm. And there you've got a list of things that could, uh, and in some cases should, depending on the organization, there are exceptions to every rule, outsource. Yep. So for example, the, exa- the example I like to use is after a massive event, I don't really want to be a volunteer who's up to my elbows in other people's shit cleaning the dunnies. <laughs> <laughs> find a point on it <laughs> so i don't think that it's necessary. some people however are really happy <laughs> to do that job hang on are you saying you can think of some volunteers who you'd like to see up to their people? not volunteers no that's a very good point no people yeah. have paid damn good money yeah so let's say we've got an event where there's a thousand people and it's those thousand people who've done their number onesies and number twosies at the event. <laughs> we could then say, if it's going to cost us a hundred bucks to have somebody come and clean the dunnies the next day, amortize that cost over those thousand people. And it's going to be 10 cents extra that they've all got to pay. And then no volunteer has to do a job that it's okay to say, well, maybe we don't let volunteers do that sort of dirty work anymore. And the same goes for potentially less icky jobs as well there are some things that clubs just really struggle to get people to put their hands up to do staffing the canteen is something that a lot of clubs complain about and there are a whole host of different types of arrangements that clubs have trialed to operate a successful and importantly somewhat profitable canteen and it fascinates me that there's such we've been doing this for what 20 three 24 24 years and there is such a small number of clubs that have nailed their canteen isn't it yeah there are so few of them and it's such a huge issue in so many other clubs to the extent where people say on the committee we can't get people to man our canteen so we're shutting the canteen what a terrible financial decision that is 
But I can well, it could be, that. but it could be a good financial decision once you oh, do the maths. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. But it, rarely have they said, "Let's make a strategic decision about this." Very it's just point. letting the yep. tail wag the dog, and we say, "Well, we can't change now because Susie's been doing it for all of those years, and we've never paid her." <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. So you can see that the argument because we're humans, the arguments for and against get so subjective yep. because we're human. So we could also consider some jobs, again, not particularly icky, but easy to compartmentalize. And the one that I think is a good one is bookkeeping. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of time and it's not necessarily the strategic component of the treasury role. So if you were to compartmentalize part of it out, bookkeeping is a fairly easy one. There's reconcilia- reconciliation that has to be done, getting the books ready to get to the auditor and back in time before the AGM. That That is process-driven work that doesn't need to be done by somebody who knows the intricacies and the, and the nuances of operation of this club. Yep. When you do that, one of the upsides is, hey, we've outsourced the, tre- outsourced the bookkeeping role. The treasury role is now one of strategic importance where instead of just looking over our shoulder at what we did last month, we can say, well, let's compare what we did last month to the budget that we set for this month because now we've got two figures. And now we've, by separating it out and paying part of it, the easy process-driven part, the strategy part stays and it makes that whole role so much more meaningful. Yeah, or in the case of most clubs, let's start to prepare a budget because so many just inherit the way of financial management from the previous committee and and don't prepare even a semblance of a budget and they just operate based on, you know, oh, well, if we've got this many members and we've got this much in the way of fixed costs, it's worked for the last 50 years, so surely it'll work this year. And sure, in a lot of cases it does, but you're not going anywhere strategically Different. towards a successful future. You're just ticking along and and there's a huge lost opportunity there. Mm. Some clubs or a lot of clubs and a lot of associations are already in this boat though. They've already made a strategic yep. or otherwise decision to pay people in referees roles or an umpire's roles again it started because it was hard to get people to put their hands up hard to keep them accountable what hard to get people to put their hand up to get yelled at <laughs> yeah. there's not many other jobs in the world where you're happy, happily going to piss off half the people watching <laughs> yes look there's there, there are rules and if the people complaining actually read the rules maybe they wouldn't go oh no it's because it's sport and we get emotionally attached to it anyway so that means that it's already happening but even that, you know, it, it, it is not necessarily a panacea because they're not necessarily, these organisations that are doing it aren't necessarily structuring it in a way that is going to have the desired effect. Yep. So sure, we start paying people, but is it either enough or paid in the right way to encourage the right people to do the job that needs to be done? So yeah, we don't want to we don't want to cover in this episode how to get more volunteers. You know, we have and we will continue to deal with that. It's probably worthy of about a million episodes right there. But this is about what to do when you get to that point of not having volunteers and realizing that you need to start paying people. And it's about doing it the right way and avoiding all of the dodgy ways that you could do it. And there are plenty of dodgy ways. One of the things that clubs start to do when they get into this is the volunteer levy. So this Mm. is the, the concept here, I suppose, is sound in theory. But there are a lot of political systems that are sound in theory. The The idea is that if we we charge a fee, so the, the every member has to pay an additional amount and, you know, they settle on some nominal amount, maybe 50 bucks. So $50 at the beginning of each year, everyone has to pay this levy. 
And then if you volunteer a certain amount, then you get your money back. Okay, on the surface, it sounds reasonable. And so many people advocate for this. We never have because we've looked into it from the human perspective and seen that if we have a system that says, right, you pay $50 and then somebody, some volunteer who's for whom it will be another job mm-hmm. will then track who does what work for a whole year to see if it's worth us giving you 50 bucks back or taking 50 bucks off your next year's fees. The other problem is that often management committees and, and treasurers aren't equipped with the understanding of how to account for these volunteer levies. So it'll often be recorded as these extra little bits of money, the $50 from each family or from each registered player will be recorded as income. Whereas it's actually a liability because if everyone earns, if everyone does their however many hours, five hours and earns that money back. So this is, you know, if the money's going to be reimbursed at the end of the year, rather than just taken off your levies next year, you actually have to have the cash to give back to the people at the end of the year. So it should be recorded as a liability and arguably it should be recorded as a liability, even if you're going to take it off their fees next year. So it gets complex and it's more complex than probably the benefit that it brings about in terms of people who weren't already going to volunteer. And like you say, the, the person who who is given the responsibility for tracking the work done against the volunteer number, the number of hours needed to earn your levy back are already bloody busy. They've got yeah. enough jobs to do. Don't give them another one. <laughs> yeah. That, that is of absolutely no value. So yeah. th- th- there are exceptions to every rule, including this one, but there are two large camps here when it comes to the volunteer levy. You've got camp A, which are the people who say, hey, I, I, I don't mind that I've paid this $50 levy. I'm going to keep doing the work anyway. So yep. keep, keep the money and let me just do the work because I love this club. And then you got the other side who are saying, 50 bucks? Are you kidding? Take my stinking money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Not do anything. Got free for $50 for a whole year. Yes. I'm buying a lack of guilt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 50 bucks 50. is bloody cheap. It's a cheap lack of guilt price, isn't it? So yeah, there's there's so many things that, that, that are wrong with it. But the final one, and I think for me, the straw that breaks the camel's back every time is the fact that I've got a $50 note here. I can't put that $50 note on the server of the canteen and have it give somebody a bucket of chips. It, yep. it, a $50 note can't do that. A $50 note can't run out on the field and blow a whistle. You know, It's not going to solve your problem. If you know what the problem is, strategically frame up that problem and work out what you need to do to fill the gaps that's left and mm-hmm. then structure positions around that. And of course, yep. do it the right way. I've got an interesting case study for you, Steve. Now, as I said at the start, I'm going to have to be a little bit careful in how I frame this. I can't mention the club, but I can't even mention the sport because it's one of those sports that is, shall we say, niche. And so you may know who I'm talking about. I know some of our listeners will definitely know who we're talking about if I was to go into too much detail. So there is a club. They've been in existence for probably, let's say, about 30 years. It's No, it's a bit less than that. It's probably 25 years now. Now, the one of the people who was a founder of the club is still very heavily involved. Wonderful, wonderful person. Seriously works her bum off for this club as the head coach. Now, she, as the founder of the club, is obviously very emotionally connected to the club and is is still coaching and leading the other coaches. She gets paid a cash allowance in the order of, let's call it for anonymity's sake, $500 every week. And that's a cash allowance. Now, the committee knows 
that they could be in trouble because it's certainly something that every time I'm talking to anyone from this club, I say, so have we sorted this out yet? Oh, but you know, we're, we're, we're getting there. But they continue to put their heads in the sand and just, and just completely ignore the problems. So they're paying her based on what's called the hobby form. Now, we'll just delve into that a little bit. The hobby form is actually called a statement by a supplier, and it, it's really important in Australian law and Australian taxation law and under the Goods and Services Tax Act because it's the reason why, as a supplier, I can tell you a business that, hey, I'm just doing this and I don't expect to make a squillion dollars out of it because I'm doing it as a hobby. And then that gives you justification to not withhold tax out of the money that you're paying me. In reality, there are a few reasons, why, only a few reasons why you would use that form. In some cases, it would be okay for the people who are refereeing or umpiring sport. But for somebody who is engaged on a systematic basis, mm. you, you can't justify it as a hobby. So I did a little bit of research in preparing for this. And looked into the statement by a supply form. Now, interestingly, it hasn't changed since the GST Act came into force in 2000. So, you know, we're a long way into it now. <laughs> so there's no excuse for not for not doing this right. So it, it, there's, and look, the, go and do your own research here. Please, you know, have a listen to what we're talking about here, but go and back it up with your own research. And the ATO website is fantastic for this. So an individual or a business that supplies services can only complete a statement by a supply form if you tick one or more of these criteria. So the first one is you're not carrying on enterprise in Australia or you're uh, under 18 and your payment doesn't exceed $350 a week. Payment doesn't exceed $75 on its own. Then the supply of the payment relates to is wholly input tax. So that, you know, they're technical and they don't really apply here, but have a listen to this one. They are an individual and a written, written statement is provided to the payer. So the person provides the written statement to the club to the effect that the supply is either made in the course of or furtherance of an activity done as a private recreational pursuit or hobby, which would be the case if I was building little uh, timber trains for sale at uh, through a men's shed or something, mm -hmm. or wholly of a private and domestic nature. There are a few more in the list, but that's the one that's important. Where we're getting here is the difference between being a hobby, so doing this as a hobby or doing it as a business. Mm -hmm. So there's a link on the ATO website if you just Google ATO statement by a supplier, there's a link there that says hobby or business. And this is where it's important. So some of the things in that list that you'll see on that page that just shine an absolute spotlight on this little club example that we're talking about that demonstrate that the engagement of this head coach is a business arrangement is she intends to make a profit or genuinely believes that you will make a profit from the activity, even if you're unlikely to do so in the short term. So over time, you know, I may have some expenses that I've incurred at the outset and I'm going to make more money in the long term. That is a profit. Yep. Here you go. You repeat similar types of activities. So it's the same time, same class every week, week in, week out for all the four school yep. terms. Pretty similar. Yep. <laughs> The size or scale of the activity is consistent with other businesses in your industry. So if we compare this club with other activities, and we, we can certainly go into the commercial realm here and say somebody who's a PT, for instance, or a boot camp operator, yep. it's very similar in nature. And your activity is planned, organized, or carry out, carried out in a business-like manner. Now, you can't say that any of those don't apply in this example. 
Yes, she's going to make a profit from it. Yes, it's similar activities week in, week out. Yes, the scale is consistent with what others would be paid in commercial activities elsewhere. And mm. yes, it's planned, it's organized, and it's carried out in a business-like, and here, definitely a systematic manner. Yeah. This is interesting because the I know that this you know form referred to colloquially as the hobby form is really commonly used in refereeing and umpiring as you said and typically that's managed at the regional in my experience that's that's often managed at the regional association or competition administrator level if it's if it's that regional association that does the engaging of the referees so they might be the ones with whom the statement by a supplier form is signed by the referees or umpires and held on file even though it's the clubs that make the payments but it's interesting that refereeing from one week to it to the next is a similar type of activity but i wonder if there's consideration given there to the fact that referees move around and the refereeing happens at different times and it might be different um age groups or levels of competition that they're refereeing so there's enough variation there to ensure that there's qualification but this highlights the importance as you said mick to go and do your own research and not to just assume that it's okay to be paying people using this tool yeah, and if you are, to, to continue your example, if you are a referee or an umpire, how much money are you making? Yeah, Is this what you do for work or is this what you do as a hobby? So in most cases, it is what people do as a hobby. Some people do it to stay fit. Some people do it to stay connected. Some people do it seriously to build resilience. <laughs> so yep. to go back to your point before, but they're not making enough, they're not making enough money to, that it would exceed the tax-free threshold for a start. So that, you know, it might be, let's say for plucking a figure out of the air, it's umpiring fees of 20 bucks a game. You're not going to make enough money in a week because there aren't enough games in a week to be able to live off that money. So that's Mm -hmm. why it it usually does fit. But if you are taking it over and above, if it is what you do professionally, then there's a very good chance that anyone having a critical look at it, and the anyone in this case would be the tax office, would be very likely to get two people in trouble, the payer and the supplier. It's a pretty important anyone to keep happy to the ATO. (laughs) Not the most forgiving body out there. Them and um, gambling licensing and liquor licensing in each state. So there are some problems when you do do the dodgy. And now this club thinks that they're doing the right thing because they're doing the right thing by our our, our club's founder. You know, we certainly don't want to annoy her, but it's going to be too much work if we have to become an employer and we have to then withhold tax and we've got to withhold super and we're going to have to pay work cover. And like all the while, every single one of those things that they're sitting around the table just, and they're all nodding in their little group think yep. vortex. They could, man, every single one of these could bring you unstuck. So I want to run through some of the problems here because although this story may be a little more extreme than some of the others that our listeners are thinking about, there are some significant problems here. Number one was for this poor girl, when the club shut down in 2020, there was no JobKeeper. There was no way that this club could apply for JobKeeper payments because there was no record of her having received Mm -hmm. any money. They got no help at all. The club had to shut down but she got nothing out of it as well. So she had no income for that time. Is that right? Is that, you know? So they think they're doing this poor coach a favour and come some unexpected and far out eventuality like a global pandemic that leads governments to make decisions that shuts clubs down. They're not doing her any favours, you know, no. and, and and this is not the last time that 
that club or you know clubs are in general are going to be shut down for some reason and so so to just say oh yeah but that's never going to happen again doesn't yeah. cut it yeah so it's really clear when you dig in i'll get back to this when you dig into it it's very clear that this lady is an employee yeah it, it's systematic enough it's business-like enough that any reasonably careful or prudent person who looks into it is going to say no 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 that that's an employment relationship therefore the club mm. should be withholding tax the, so, well let's go through it they should be withholding tax and they're not mm-hmm. they should be paying her superannuation and they're not now that's really important because that's the so if you mess up with super in australia you get fined so heavily yeah. as you should because that's what looks after somebody in the future but it's also bad for her because she's got no nest egg they should be maintaining work cover insurance for her and they're not. What if she's hurt at work? And yep. this is sport, you know, it's physically mm. demanding work. There's a chance she could be hurt because of the repetitive nature of the coaching acti- activities that she's doing. If she's hurt, there's no coverage and she'd have to sue the club and the club would have to fund that out of their own pocket. And how far is that going to go? Yeah. If anything goes wrong, the ATO at least the ATO is very likely to rule that she is and has been an employee for the whole 25 odd years that she's been there. Now I can't speak for certain, obviously, but it's very likely that that club would be liable to pay her super for 20 years. They'd have to pay the tax for her for 20, 25 years. What's the likelihood that all of these things are going to happen? And this is where they get into their, their group thinking vortex mm-hmm. again. They say things like, well, you know, it hasn't happened so far, so we're all good, Right. Well, in reality, and here's where I, here's where my creative imagination gets the better of me. And I think, what's it going to take for this poor club and this person to get in trouble? It, it's only going to take for one person to get pissed off and everything comes unstuck. Now, who's that person? Of course, it could be the head coach herself if she's politely asked to move on. And mm. then she just says, well, let's have a look at this for a minute. And look at the quagmire of stuff, the, the Pandora's box that yeah. they're going to open. Yeah, the likelihood may be low, you know, when we do our risk management inspection here, the likelihood is low because, you know, once in 25 years is a low likelihood. But the consequences here would mean that the club would go bankrupt. And in Queensland, as we've been through, the legislation Mm. has now changed and the management committee members of clubs can be held personally liable should clubs trade insolvent. This has been the case interstate, but us being in Queensland, we're intimately aware of the changes that have only just taken effect. Because the club was negligent in what they did in not withholding super, not withholding the tax, then should there be a claim made for those payments? Oh, and long service leave, you know, mm. two and a half times of, of long service leave. Yeah. There's a lot of money they should have on the balance sheet. And guess what? They don't. So, you know, that's catastrophic for the club and financially terrible potentially for individuals who are running that club. So that in itself is, it it's, may seem like doom and gloom. You know, when I paint that picture for this club, they say, oh yeah, but Michael, it's never happened before. And I make it perfectly clear to document all of my advice <laughs> that I've given to this club, by the way. So it's, It's important to consider that things can and do go wrong. So you need to do everything you can to insulate yourself against those things going wrong. And as we've discussed in the world of sport and in clubs, people do get pissed off. The dynamic of management committees changes over time and and countless times in my experience, you know, I know of people who've set up a club and then within a few short years, new people with very different 
philosophies come in and that person is to some extent ostracized and and feels as though people have come in and taken over their turf and and shit goes south really quickly in some cases so don't just tell yourself that it's never going to happen don't tell yourself that oh yeah but she loves our club and Mm. she would never do anything like that and so the example that i referred to earlier was far riskier in my initial assessment because that particular football club that that had this same sort of thing going on but not just for one coach but for a a good handful of people was paying out between two and three hundred thousand dollars a year in in unrecorded payments like this. So there was wow, there would have been massive liabilities if again one person from amongst the the good number who were being paid these off the record payments cracked the shits and mm. and wanted to cause trouble for the club. But, and it could be something completely unrelated. Sure, it might be one of the of staff members, you know, the employees who crack the shits, but it doesn't need to be. It could be someone who just knows that's going on who wasn't selected in the first team that year and then said, oh, I'm going to yeah. get back at them and then completely undoes the whole... Uh, the club's doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Whatever it is that triggers them getting busted for it is, you know, they're leaving themselves exposed for it. So whatever it is, no matter how vindictive or malicious it is, they've got to be accountable for it. Do you know what? It could also be completely innocent and necessary, like a workplace injury, mm. as you touched on. It could yep. be absolutely, you know, imperative that someone be recompensed for injuries that they've sustained at work. So therefore they have to sue the club so they can cover their medical expenses. And then that Pandora box gets opened. What if someone dies? <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So look, it, it it gets serious, and like you said, shit goes sideways really quickly when we're yeah. talking about this. So, the, the long and short of it is, be bloody careful. So, can I ask a question then, Steve? On your story, were they using honorariums to pay yes. out that two to three? Okay, indeed, that's a so lot the, of money in honorariums. Yeah. So there was a, I believe there was a greenkeeper who was being paid using the statement by a supplier form, to the tune of. A few hundred dollars a week. Mm-hmm. So probably similar, maybe four or five hundred dollars a week. A retired, you know, ex greenkeeper, a wealth of knowledge, really knew his stuff, great asset for the club. Um, let's uh, just let's just focus in on that one a little bit more because let me ask you some more questions to determine whether it's okay that that person be paid on a statement by a supply form or as an, as an honorarium. And I imagine that all of the honorariums or honoraria were paid based on the statement by a supplier form as well? I don't believe so, no. Oh, okay. So, so not the, even that level of agreement. No, I believe he was the only one that had a statement by a supplier form or hobby form agreement and yep. everyone else was just... And and there was a family running the canteen and they were all being paid honoraria. Mm. And, and, and like I say, it, it stretched out to the tune of, you know, more than a quarter of a million dollars. That's amazing. Yep. So there's a really good tool that I want to point everyone towards on the ATO mm-hmm. website that is, that, that does this check. Are you an employee or are you a contractor? And it's really simple and it would apply beautifully in this case. Good. Yep. So some of the questions, now I did this tool for my example, and guess what? The answer came back. The worker is an employee and you need to pay super. That was the answer. I've got, in my notes, I've got that in inverted commas. So what constitutes a contractor and what constitutes an employee? There are comparisons in a range of areas for each, and it's and it's really clear. So an employee 
is employed and it's that person. So in your case, it's the, it's the groundskeeper themselves. He's mm-hmm. doing the work. He yep. can't delegate that to someone else. Therefore, it's not a contract arrangement. Whereas if he was the head of a, a contracting firm, then it wouldn't necessarily be him riding the tractors each week. Okay. So the answer there is employee, not contractor. What's the basis of payment? Is it a payment per week, a payment per hour, or a payment per unit delivered? That would be an employment arrangement. Or is the basis of payment that they're paid for a result? So every month it will be assessed that the grass is this long, this green, and this wet, or this healthy. That's an achievement, and that would be more likely to be a contract or arrangement for which a fixed price can be agreed. This is the one that I was thinking about as you were talking about it. Who provides the equipment and tools? Does the greenkeeper in the money that he's paid does he go out and buy the hydro tetro sulfide chlorate to go and fertilize or <laughs> irrigate or whatever it do, you do with hydro sulfate, or does the club provide that and he simply uses it who owns the tractor who owns the mower who owns the yeah. whippersnipper yeah. who owns the leaf blower the club all of the above and if he was to go and make any purchases it would be club money for instance with the club debit card that he would have for last minute purchases that he needed that day, so you know, didn't have time to organise a payment by a couple of committee members. So yep. definitely club money. Yep. Uh, who absorbs the risk if something goes sideways in this case? Is it the, the is it the contractor who is contractually liable, or is it the employee? No, it's going to be the club, isn't it? So yeah. therefore, again, ticks the employee box. Yeah. Who has control over the work? Does the club control what the greenskeeper does? Or does the club say to the contractor, you've got control over how it's done, when it's done, and by whom it's done? And independence. So an employee, for instance, is not it doesn't operate independently of the organization. A contractor, however, does. So if a contractor is, and that you know comes back to some of those other points as well. So I think that's six things in that list. And in the example we've just been through, every one of them says that this greenkeeper is an employee and therefore super should be paid, tax should be withheld, and there's long service leave li- liability for the club, and they should have work cover protection, especially for somebody who's riding a mower. Bloody oath, yeah. Uh, and dealing with potentially hazardous chemicals and fertilisers and so yeah. on as well. Um, the last couple are interesting in this case because of this guy's knowledge, experience and skill set. He was probably given, you know, carte blanche to some extent. To, oh, he knows what he's doing, so just let him do his thing. So he probably provided a degree of direction to the committee uh, and and had a you know a degree of control over his own work okay. that might not have otherwise existed if he didn't have all of that experience. But even if it was four from six, <laughs> there's a tool. Well, we don't have to speculate on that, Steve. There's a tool. You go and answer the questions in the tool, and it says right. if you answer these questions honestly, you can rely on the results of this tool. Oh wow, that's great. that's yeah. how good that tool is. Go and use so, it. Go and use the tool. We we have access to that. Guess how much it cost me to do that. 10 minutes, five yeah, well, minutes. Not, yeah, not even, and certainly no dollars to log into the, the ATO website to do it. Yeah. So let's get back to honorariums, Emmett. An honorarium is mm. a payment that's given for professional services that are rendered nominally without charge. So in these cases, the organisation, so normally the club, is the payer, and they don't recognise themselves as having any liability or legal ob- obligation for the person receiving the honorarium for the services that the honor- that the honorarium receiver renders in a voluntary capacity. Mm. The, so they're very often used 
for and there are some great, great examples of them being used for people in coaching roles who are going to absorb some expenses. We probably see them more in the off-field area yeah. being given to people on committees and boards. And they cover things like travel, accommodation, and even some prep time for meetings. And the fact that I will I will incur some expenses for on behalf of the club because I'm a board member. And some things which are difficult to track. So you mentioned travel, you know, wear and tear on your car, fuel used to get to and from club meetings and events, maybe some printing, stationery, and office expenses incurred, you know, by virtue of you needing to have that stuff to do your secretary or treasurer job well and it's it's a lot of that stuff that isn't necessarily really easy to provide a receipt to the committee for and say can i please be reimbursed for this exact amount yeah yeah so then that opens the can of worms for what is included and what isn't included and i know that you and i have had the discussion previously steve where if an organization is paying honorariums out to people say committee people mm-hmm. it's really important that there's some criteria or some structure around what that honorarium is in recognition for so this yep. is in recognition for the fact that you will incur some expenses this is in effect the way that we're making sure you're not personally out of pocket mm. there will be a limit though so let's say that this this particular committee has some interstate travel if that's not covered by the honorarium then the interstate travel would probably still be an over and above payment made by that organization because it's not going to it's not reasonable still for that to you know if it's a 200 dollars a year honorarium payment or then that's not going to cover a few thousand dollars of travel costs so mm. it would still be okay for that to be an exclusion and covered separately What's important though is, and there's not one right way for doing this, apart from the fact that you would make those payments based on a hobby form so that at least both sides have evidence that there is an agreement in place here and we're not withholding tax because you are doing this as a hobby. It's only a small part of what you do. But it's really important that you have that system in place that says this is what's covered, this is what's not covered. If something then comes up that you, you don't know how to deal with, the first time it happens, deal with it and add it to the system. Don't add it to the yep. list of the criteria. This is also really important in the context of the changes to the Associations Incorporation Act here in Queensland, because as of just a few months time, 30 June this year, any incorporated association that makes payments to its management committee or any of their relative management committee members or their relatives are going to need to declare those payments at the AGM. So, so it's, it's vital that this stuff is done according to a system and in a way that is transparent and accountable because it is very soon going to be the law for incorporated associations, which really represent the majority of the not-for-profit sport and recreation businesses in the country, you know, yep. existing as incorporated associations in their relevant state and territory. And it's it's important that, you know, volunteers who are running those clubs and associations understand the importance of doing this stuff right according to the system and not just under the table. The system that we're talking about doesn't need to be complicated. All we talk about when we say systems are better than sweetheart deals is to have something in writing that, as you just said, is transferable 
So it can transcend committees and you apply it consistently. So don't be put off. So really all we're talking about is something like a bylaw or a policy, but don't be put off by the fact that you might have to write some policies. I remember when I started in this job, it used to piss me off like nothing when government officials would say, yes, well, this club should have policies and procedures to deal with that. And I felt like saying to one of them, do you even know what a policy or a procedure looks like, let alone what it is or what it's supposed to do? So that was when, you know, again, little policies crack- and procedures make you really efficient and effective. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're hurting me now. <laughs> Moving <bleeding> forward. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A policy is something that says, this is how we will deal with it. A procedure is then, this is the system by, this is the steps that we will take to deal with it. So a policy might say, we'll make sure that none of our committee members are out of pocket. The way that we shall do this is to pay an honorarium of X dollars per year in recognition for dot point dot point dot. System done. That's it. What's that going to be? About a third of a page, half a page tops. That's all it needs to be. But if you think about the the trouble that that could save down the track, it's Mm. really worthwhile. This has been a really interesting topic. And unfortunately, it's one that rears its head every now and again. So you and I have both given examples that one, yours, is well underway to being fixed. And that club, as I understand, are taking all of the right steps now to sort out or to tie up all of those loose ends. Mm, they are. It's interesting to note that it's it's dragging on because the business of running the football club is getting in the way. Mm. And and I keep reminding them that, that they've got to be careful not to let it drop off the bottom because this is actually the most important thing that this committee will do and leave as a legacy is fixing this problem that, as I yep. said earlier, several committees have allowed to come and go. And whew, once I'm off the committee, mm. I don't need to worry about that anymore. Yeah, and... And dealing with the flack because there will be some people, and I know that in football in particular, there have been cases where a regional association, like you said, has said, we're no longer paying cash out of the till to you to you when you come and ref a game. It's yes. all going through EFT. And the, yes. the backlash from the ref saying, well, it's bullshit and you can't do that to us. And we're going to spend um, that money at the bar. Blah, blah, blah. Oh. We don't, okay, that is all your problem. We have to be accountable for it. This is serious. Yep. This is business and we're dealing with tax and super and insurance. So we can't screw this up. Yep. So you need to be able to have thick enough skin to be able to cop the flack that is likely to come with it. But hey, you can blame us. You can say, hey, we, well, kind of. You can blame Michael and Steve for showing this that the ATO <laughs> were going to tell us it was wrong. <laughs> The, the the problems that you can... So where I'm going with this is yours is on the way to being fixed. Mine, let's hope that it gets fixed soon, but nothing yep. has happened so far. So I think they are just incredibly lucky. You can't run a business of any size, including a not-for-profit business on luck or hope. That's yep. not a sustainable business model. There are countless other businesses who have had the book thrown at them and most of them don't exist anymore because it's bad enough when this stuff goes wrong that you, your club won't be in existence anymore. And who's benefiting then? You know, all of those players yep. who can't play here, all of the volunteers who had some way to connect all those reasons we talked about before and they can't anymore. Then the council has to step in and take over the facilities and put out an expression of interest for somebody else to come and lose. So you look at the like we said, the Pandora's box, it gets opened when this stuff goes bad and it is just not, it, it's just not worth the risk. Yep. Yes, that includes some human risks. Yes, it includes spending some time to get it right. And yes, it includes some costs. But I guarantee that the costs that you pay in paying superannuation regularly and paying your, t- your POIG withholding tax regularly and paying your insurance premiums for your work health and safety insurance, 
it's going to be far less than going out of business because you get fined and sued until you've got nothing left and that it crosses over and there's no protection because we're in an incorporated association. We're coming after you and your house and your boat and your car. Thank you very much. Yep. So the takeaways from this episode, <laughs> where, where do we start? Go back to the start. Listen again. If you're doing anything, <laughs> fix it. So they go onto the ATO website. Like I'm not tongue in cheek. I have been commending the ATO's website since I got heavily involved in needing to look at it through 1999, 2000, through the transition to the goods and services tax. The way that they provide information for not-for-profit organisations is just so helpful. And I'm not Mm. being sarcastic. They make it easy. The tool there is easy to use. It is clear. And then when you need more information, when you ring them, they actually talk to you. Okay, you've got to they sit do. on hold. But when you get there, the reason that you sat on hold is because the person at the other end of the phone cares about your situation and wants to dig into it. They will mm. help you. And that advice is why we pay tax. It's part of why we pay tax in the first place. Mm. It's fine for clubs to be employers. So we've been through the rant many a times. We don't say operate your club like a business because you are a business. You just need to operate it as the business that you already are. Incorporated associations, companies limited by guarantee, you can be an employer. It is, a, it is a business structure that allows you to be an employer. But when you do become an employer, do it properly. Don't try and pull the wool over the tax man's eyes. Don't try and cheat the super system. Don't try and cheat the insurance system because it's that sort of stuff that's going to bite you in the ass and it's going to hurt. Then you need to make sure that you have a business model that has and the fee structures built around it that supports your ability to do this. So if you are going to pay wages, for instance, obviously that money's got to come from somewhere. You can't just go, boom, now we've got enough money and we can pay wages. Thank you very much for my magic wand. How you do that is all about what we talk about in having a good business. And again, there's not one right way, but make sure that you do so that you can afford to do it and to do it right. What comes to mind when you make that point about having the business model and fee structure that supports doing this stuff correctly is an example of a club that within three years, it's one of the clubs that you worked with, but within a few years, they started paying someone, I believe in an administrative role. And then within a few more years, they had maybe two or three employees. And because they didn't have this long legacy of being a purely voluntary club where you turn up and chip in and pay bugger all, it was really easy for them to educate their member membership base that, hey, we're a club that's run largely by volunteers, but we've got some paid people or we're introducing some paid people and to cover their wages, you're going to have to pay a little bit more in your membership fees. And people were really happy to accept it. It's fascinating that in a lot of cases that level of acceptance would probably be experienced in long running clubs. And it's just this mindset that exists, you know, between the years of the management committee members. Oh, we, we can't, do we can't put our fees up because they've always been this or mm. they've always been, we've always there. been the cheapest in the league. Exactly. And you know, that's why we've got so many members. That's why we're successful. That's why we've got people that love our club. No, <laughs> do this stuff, right. Run your club as the business that it is. And, you'll find that people will stick around. (laughs) And if you lose some people, they're probably the people that you didn't want in the first place. If you lose people for whinging, oh, you know, they're paying money to employees. Oh, that's not not for profit. That's not what sports should be like. Well, go elsewhere, sunshine. (laughs) You know, the story that you just said was a football club, by the way. Yes, football, okay. And look, and everyone's scenario is different. So while that worked for this club, because they're in a, a... 
I won't say an affluent area, but it's an area that is attracting exactly the right demographic. Okay. So it's mum and dad with kids and they've got money enough to build a but new no time. growing estates. And no time. Yeah, because they're driving half an hour to work each way, each day, and and then they've got to do everything else. So yeah, it, it's so they are in the right place to be able to do that. But they even did that. They just said, we've got a no dickheads policy here. And yeah, if somebody good. wants to arc up against it, we'll say, look, you don't have to be a member here. That's just how it is. And they've watched those people now that they are oh, eight or nine years old. They've watched those people that they kicked out or, or said, no, thank you, or just Sacked put their foot member. down with. Yeah. yeah. And they've gone to the other clubs. And now they visit in their home games as, as from the away clubs and they can see them doing exactly the same thing, pissing the other clubs off. So they were going to do it wherever they were anyway. And yep. they've just said, you know what? We don't need that. And that was a really interesting case why that came about in the first place, because the president uh, at the time, the founding president said, the amount of crap that I've had to deal with in being the president, plus I've had to run the canteen, plus I've had to set the fields up, plus I've had to do all of the judicial work he said, there's no way that I can lie straight in bed at night if I hand this job on to somebody else. So not only did he divide the yeah. job up, he was, he, I don't mean he, I mean they. So Richard was just in the right place to, with a great group of people on the committee at the time that was right. a, that were able to set this, the, these systems up. Yep. They then not only divided the pro, the jobs up, they also decided which ones are on the other side of the line and therefore we're just paying for them. Then they built a business model around that awesome. and it just worked. Mm. So there's always a way. You've got these problems that you think you've been facing for years, but you know, once you actually get in and have a good look and say, well, what? let's take the human element out of this as much as we can and let's see if there's another way. There's always another way. And if that means that we are creating an environment that fosters happy volunteers, then as far as I'm concerned, happy days. Showcase clubs. Showcase clubs. <laughs> Steve, as usual, it has been an absolute pleasure having Indeed. these chinwaggy sessions. They do get a bit ranty sometimes, but you know what? Boxy. Yeah, that's all right. A bit soap, bit soapboxy, but it's because we see the shit that people do wrong and say, you know what? There is a better way. Just don't do what these clubs did. Do it the right way. And then you can be a showcase club without having to make the, the long walk of shame from basket case to showcase. <laughs> On that note, we should remind all of our listeners that if you're not already subscribed to our newsletter, it's full of interesting tidbits just like this. Uh, you'll get nice little videos, so short, some short tips. Obviously, follow us on social media. And... Seriously, don't be a stranger. If you've got something that you want to talk to us about, we are accessible. cprgroup.com.au is where you can find lots of information about how to connect with us. And we would love to hear your ideas on yes, this, any would. stories you've got on this topic, but also on any ideas for future episodes as well. So on that, Steve, I look forward to talking to you next time and hopefully talking more. I was going to say, hopefully talking more showcase clubs, but you know what? It's much more fun talking about the basket cases. <laughs> As always, Mick, thank you very much and look forward to catching up next time. See you then. Basket.